And I'll never forget, I, I happened to be talking about the situation with Jennifer, just looking for answers. And I made a commitment. I said to the Lord, I'm going to, I'm going to, I am going to start January uh, of 2008 with a fast. And I want to do this because I want to know you better, but I also want answers about Jennifer. And at that very moment, um, light was began reflecting off the pavement. It was right at the grass edge. And uh, so it obviously caught my eye. So I walked over to where I saw the light. Um, you know, it was coming off of this item on the, and, and so when I bent down, I can see it was this silver pendant. It was a heart-shaped pendant. When I t- picked it up and turned it over, it had the name Jennifer on it. That moment, I can't even express in words how I felt, but there was this peace. And I looked and I remember thinking to myself, I can't believe it. You gave me a tangible reason to be hopeful. And so from that point, as soon as I got home, I showed it my wife, I called my sister and I gave, ultimately gave that to my sister. And I just thought to myself, from that moment forward, I have been at peace that God has Jennifer's heart. I think that was what he was telling me was I have her heart. And so whether she's alive or she's not, if he has her heart, then she's protected. She's in the best place that she can be. This is the Silver Linings Handbook Podcast. I'm Jason Blair. That's Bill Gilmore, the uncle of Jennifer Keese, a 24-year-old woman who disappeared in 2006 in Orlando, Florida. Bill is the author of a book called Aftermath of the Jennifer Keese Abduction and Uncle's Quest for Understanding and Inspiring Life Lessons. That book came out in 2023, on the 17th anniversary of the day that Jennifer was last seen leaving the office of Central Florida Investments Timeshare Company, where she worked as a financial analyst. The reactions that people have to grief and loss are as varied as a kaleidoscope, with colors and patterns that are unique to each person and each eye that observes them. In the aftermath of Jen's absence, Bill poured his heart into finding a way to understand and stop the cycle of despair and misery that so often surrounds and engulfs those who experience deep losses. It was his own agony, his publisher in his book's description wrote, over 17 years of brokenness that he used as a catalyst to change the course of his outlook on life. In this book, Bill shares the story of Jennifer's life, the events around her disappearance, the heartbreaking loss that her family and friends felt, and the aftermath. Bill credits God, family, community for healing and hope and inspiration that he says has come from his loss. He writes about how his loss helped him come out the other side stronger how it taught him how to build more robust relationships, to strengthen his resilience, and to see the power and vulnerability and humility. Today, we're going to explore grief and loss, hope and healing, and finding growth from tragedy. First, though, I want to share some of Jennifer's story. Jennifer Joyce Kessie, was born on May 20th, 1981, in Neptune, New Jersey. 
to Drew and Joyce Kessie. Joyce and Drew brought their baby girl home to their house 40 miles away in Bangagat in Ocean County Township along the New Jersey shore. The family later moved to Centerville, Virginia, where Drew, who worked as a sales representative for Mars Corporation, obtained a new territory. A few years later, the family moved from the field farms and new subdivisions of Centerville to Valerica, Florida, another ocean town of former cotton plantations in a suburb of Tampa that had long been the home to migrants from the north. You can still find newspaper clippings where you see Jen's name on the honor roll for Miles Elementary School, where she went before attending Gaither High School, where classmates and others described her as an incredibly loyal friend who would drop everything to support others, whether it because of a breakup or for a birthday. After graduating in 1999, Drew and Joyce's younger daughter went off to the University of Central Florida and later settled nearby in Orlando. It was about 74 miles and a little more than an hour trip from home. Two years later, after graduating, Jen had obtained a job as a financial analyst for a timeshare company. She had a serious boyfriend and had saved enough money to buy her own condo. She was only 24 years old. Drew and Joyce were proud of their baby girl, But on Tuesday, January 24, 2006, the world changed for Jen Kessie and her family. Jen was suddenly gone. At 6 p.m. on January 23rd, Jen left work and called her parents. That was the last time they heard from her. She arrived home that day for the first time since having left for vacation with her boyfriend to St. Croix. At 10 p.m. that night, Jen and her boyfriend spoke on the phone and said their last goodnights. When they didn't speak in the morning, Jen's boyfriend chalked it up to an early morning meeting she had said she planned to have. But when she didn't show up for work by 11 a.m., her colleagues thought it was so out of character that they pulled out Jen's emergency contacts and called her parents. Is Jennifer okay, her parents remember an employee asking. It was the call that changed everything. As her parents made the drive from the Tampa suburbs to Jen's condo, they called the building manager who went into the apartment and said everything seemed fine, but Jen's car was missing. After Jen's parents and her brother Logan arrived, they called the police, who unsurprisingly took the position that she may have left on her own volition. What they didn't know at that time was a little more than one mile from Jen's home, Surveillance cameras at an apartment complex recorded a person parking Jen's black 2004 Chevrolet Malibu and then walking away. A fence obscured the face of the person in the three images that the camera captured. The video was found two days later, and the investigation began in earnest. And as experts in missing persons and murder cases will tell you, that was two days too late. The case was beset by challenges that go beyond the police being unable, even with the help of NASA, to enhance the video to identify the person who parked Jen's car. One Fox News journalist called the suspect the luckiest person of interest ever. The Orlando Police Department took the lead in the investigation, but Jen's family says that there was a 10-year gap 
where little was done on the case. The case eventually was handed off to the FBI, and Drew and Joyce told the Orlando police chief in a three-hour meeting that prior to her arrival, the department had repeatedly botched the case. Later, the Florida Department of Law Enforcement's cold case squad took over the case. The family hired their own investigators. They were able to collaborate with Jen's work to raise more than $1 million in reward money. They worked to change Florida laws regarding missing persons cases. And still, nothing. That's 18 missed birthdays, 18 missed Christmases, 18 missed Thanksgivings, and years of heartache. Jen's dad, Drew, once said, closure is everything. To be in limbo, you can't even call it hell. There's not even a word for it. In October 1958, J.R.R. Tolkien wrote a letter to an inquiring reader who had a host of interesting and specific questions about the Lord of the Rings. In one of his drafts, Tolkien wrote, a divine punishment is also a divine gift, if accepted, since its object is ultimate blessing and the supreme inventiveness of the creator will make punishments produce good not otherwise to be attained. Years later, in 2015, Stephen Colbert put it in a more succinct way in an interview with GQ magazine. What punishments of God are not gifts, he asked. Despite the experience beyond hell, Bill has been on a journey to find those gifts and help others find them, to find hope and healing and to find inspiration and comfort. And Bill wants that for all of those who experience loss and tragedy, which in many ways includes all of us. So, Bill, I wanted to thank you for uh, joining and just tell the story of how I originally came across um, you know, I joke that I'm not a, a true crime podcaster and more general podcaster, but I, you know, I'm close with a lot of people in the true crime community. And I had a friend who was at last year's Crime Con um, in Orlando, Florida, who had met you, gotten a signed book um, from you, and overnight she had read some of the chapters of the book and came down to me and said, You have to interview this guy. And then, you know, I wrote it down, I put it in a folder, and then months later, I get a text message from her. And it, that may not be the only one she sent me, with a picture of the book <laughs> saying, have you read it? And, uh, you know, I had, uh, I got a chance over the holidays to to start the re- book, and I was just really moved by one uh, one particular sort of overarching theme. Um, my mom died in October, And one of the things that really, 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 really struck me about the experience, it was nothing like what I thought it was. I I anticipated the grief and sadness, but I did not anticipate that feeling that it was a gift. And J.R.R. Tolkien, I talk about this in the intro, he talks about how divine punishments are gifts. But I think that Stephen Colbert, who lost his father and two of his brothers in a plane crash just put it so beautifully when he once said what punishments of God are not gifts. 
And I know coming out of my loss of my mother, you know, I thought I understood what loss is. And I realize I relate to people more deeply. I, there are parts of her that I want to carry on that I see more clearly. What I want for my life is more clearly. And I just think about the way that you approach Jen's story. It wasn't what I expected in reading a book about someone was missing. And, and, and so two things. One is, uh, I, I mean, we had that shared experience. My mom uh, got sick last May um, and she passed in June, June 22nd. And so the twist of irony here is the book was released in January. Um, I Generally speaking, I was up every week, uh, excuse me, once a month I was up there for her medical appointments. And when she got sick, I just knew that my my priority was to be with her. So I was up there for a good four to six weeks. And, and then I, but I, on the su- Sunday before she died, I, I had said to her, you know, she knew that I had the book launch was in Orlando where, where, you know, at first Baptist, where we talk about, I talk about that in the book. So I always knew that I wanted to have the official launch there, but it was just sad because I knew when I left that Sunday, I, I, I said, I'll see you in a few days, but I knew where she was mm. at that moment that I wouldn't. And then when I got the call on that Thursday morning, it was my, from my other, my, one of my sisters was with her, you know, there was that that finality and yet that peace, because number one, she knew where she was going. And so when you realize that, that, that when we leave this, this, um, this biological space and we leave our, our biological, if you will, suits, you know, the soul is going to live on forever. And, and, you know, and, and as we'll probably talk about that, um, when you, when you know with certainty and confidence, um, that, you know, that you are, going to be the moment you die here if you're a follower of Jesus that you're going to be in the presence of Jesus and all your loved ones who've gone before you uh, and then there's no more pain no more suffering you know it's none of the stuff that we live with there's that level that you're rejoicing almost a little bit wishing that you were going too because you know uh, we're still here we have to we have to kind of continue to slog it through um, and, and the chaos of, of what, we, what we currently live in. But you know that the people that we love that have left are in a much better place. So it's, yeah, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's been a hard process. And, you know, I, thankfully, we've got some really great photos of my mom. Mm. Uh, and those are great reminders. Uh, but, you know, there is another, you know, I will, I will see her again. And so that's a great, um, you know, for me, that's a, that's a great a, a level of peace, knowing that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to see her again one day. Yeah, the um, I love talking about my mom. And yep. Don't don't worry if I get a little um emotional because I never want to not um get emotional for it. Yeah, because I really do believe that. I heard this this quote recently. I think it 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 was that you know grief is all of my unexpressed love, and it it really is, but. I, I, I've told this story probably a thousand times since my mom passed, but so a, about a month before she passed away, she was in the hos- uh, hospital uh, at a different location. And my former partner had gone to visit her and my mom was singing a hymn. And she said to my former partner, Bonnie, she said to her, you know, do you know this, this song? And, and, and Bonnie told her, no, I don't know this song. And, my mom said, well, it's about going home to the Lord in heaven. And my, my mom said, I can't wait for that moment. Yep. It's not today. 
<laughs> and so it was a month later. But yep. And when you hear when you hear that when you re- hear those words from your mom, then that just should give you such encouragement that you know she is now she's been restored. Peace. She's restored to the perfection that was originally intended for all of mankind. And that's and to me that was a gift in itself. Um, yep. To to hear that. So. One of the things I, I was just thinking about this, and I didn't realize until this morning that we're talking, you know, on January 24th, 2024, 18 yes. years to the day, yep. possible that, uh, that Jen was likely abducted. And, you know, it would have been one day, 18 years and one day after anyone had spoken to her and i was just curious i mean like you know it's a long time to have someone missing without any element of closure and we spend a lot of time like in these kinds of conversations talking about what happened to the person and and to me that's only really one facet of the story certainly the aftermath itself like you write about as a facet of it but how they lived is also an important part of it. And I, I was just curious about what you, I know you lived in New Jersey when the, when the family was there. We lived on the same cul-de-sac. <laughs> yeah. You live close. What do you remember about Jen? Well, I mean, you know, it, it, it's just kind of, there's, there's a lot of funny things because obviously, you know, we, we did, my wife and I didn't have our, our first child, our oldest son, Matthew just turned 40. We didn't have him until 19, December, 1983. So Jen was born May of, uh, of, uh, Oh my gosh, I'm having a brain fart. 1981, and uh, and so she, you know, she was like ours, and they lived on the cul-de-sac. So you know, we spent a lot of time with them, and it was it used to be. I mean, the funny anecdotes. I mean, sort of times, like your first kid was. Yeah, it, it, <laughs> yeah, it, it, it was exactly. We got to practice on her. And we got some great photos, uh, <laughs> you know, of her. But you know, I just have a lot of a lot of fond memories because when she was really uh, small, and you know, when Joyce and Drew needed you know a little time for you know adult time. Sometimes in the early mornings, Drew would come around the, our backyard and he would throw little pebbles up at our window to get our attention, <laughs> you know. And and so there, and he, he and I, we took on so many projects. There were so many um, in the early years. Jennifer's birthday, they always celebrated on Memorial Day weekend. And uh, and back then, you know, Drew's extended family included uh, what would have been Jen's great grandparents. So, you know, there was just a lot of family and friends around for those early birthdays. And then, like I said, in in, uh, 84, they then moved to Virginia. So that created a little bit of of distance. And then in 88, they ended up moving down to Florida. And that just created another level of separation. But then when we moved back to when we moved to Florida in 99, um, you know, we got to see them a little more frequently. Um, ultimately Jen went to UCF. She graduated in 2004. So we actually hosted her graduation party at our house because we were uh-huh. in central Florida, but you know, Jen was one of those, you know, a typical firstborn. So I, I can liken that I was a firstborn. So a typical first, same here. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, very determined, uh, you know, very, uh, strong willed, um, but really smart. Um, you know, and she just was very aware of things. And I guess, you know, a lot of times first, firstborns, you know, like, we get referred to as old souls, but in the sense that, you know, with Jennifer specifically, her level of, of conscious awareness of, of, um, security, you know, especially as a young woman, attractive young woman, uh, she just was, she was just always aware of, you know, so she was leaving a mall in the evening hours, 
she'd get on the phone and talk to somebody until she got in the car, locked the doors. I mean, that, that's the kind of person she was, which, which then led us to this whole situation where, you know, if she was going to be late for something, she would call and let you know. Um, and that was something she did at work as well. So when she didn't show up for a meeting that Tuesday morning, uh, back in 2006, you know, the employer knew immediately something was wrong. And they reached out to, to Joyce and Drew. And of course, the, then the phone call started immediately. Everything went to voicemail. And they hear the twist of irony, as you said in the start here, I, I was actually in the air on my way to New Jersey for a business meeting. And mm. so Joyce and Drew, uh, Joyce and I played telephone tag. So it wasn't until actually six o'clock that Tuesday um, that I found out. So just what had been, you know, an hour and a half ago or so, two hours ago is when I first heard about it. And it was just the, the sense of disbelief, like what? Um, yeah. But, you know. Um, it's got to be a shocking moment because, you know, people, you know, parents worry about their kids and, and uncles yes. do too, worry about their nieces and nephews. And you worry about them, but that's not, usually the thing that you worry about, you worry about heartbreak or them getting through college or being in a car accident. I think it's, it's hard to even imagine something like, like this happening. Oh yeah. Especially when every, when the trajectory of everything was moving in the right direction. I mean, you know, as a 24 year old young professional was doing well at work, you know, was able to afford uh, to buy her first home, a condo, um, she had just bought a new car. Uh, she was, you know, seeing someone that, that they were, that, you know, they, they were serious. It looked like, you know, from a relationship perspective, that was on a good track. So you sit there, it's like everything is moving in the kind of way that you would wish for. And then abruptly, this happens. And for us, it was, uh, and, you know, I hate, hate that we'll probably bounce around a little bit, but she happened, she had uh, come up um, on the 28th of December uh, for my, my son, Matthew's birthday. So we had all gone out to dinner. My mother was there and uh, we had a great evening. And that was the last time we, we saw Jen, right. Cause then it was just a little bit less than a month, uh, later that, that we got, you know, that we got the call about her disappear, her her disappearance initially, and then realizing she was abducted. But the, the interesting thing was, was, you know, when that happens, of course, then the first thing you're doing is you're trying to get, you know, those missing persons, uh, flyers out there. And we could not find a picture of Jennifer that was not smiling. Oh, wow. Okay. And then we, we ended up going and getting the film developed. Um, I don't know, maybe a week in, week and a half in to this, uh, the film that, w- that we had taken when she was with us on that uh, December 28th. And I happened to take a picture of her with food in her mouth. So it was kind of like mid bite, but that was the only photo of her not smiling because they made it, you know, the law enforcement and others from crime watch and others were saying, Hey, look, you know, you really got to try to find a picture of, of Jennifer not smiling because anybody that would likely see her, she's not smiling. And that was a picture that we ended up using on a lot of the flyers. You know, we, we ultimately used that flyer to replace the one of her smiling but um, that says something probably about her and her personality. It, it, it does. It, yeah, it yeah. does. Was she very warm? I had read that um, her friends described her as one of the most loyal people yes. that they knew. Someone who would drop anything for them. 
And you know what, as even, you know, whether it's a parent, they were certainly more aware of it, my sister and brother-in-law, you know, but as, as family, we were aware of it. But when we saw the outpouring of support um, from her, those friends, uh, from her sorority and people that she knew in college, I mean, many of them put their careers, their jobs, they, they put them on hold to help out in those early weeks. I mean, so again, that speaks volumes to the relationship that Jen had with so many people in her life. Mm. Yeah, that's yeah, that's wild. So the last time you saw her was probably near the holidays. Or it was, it was December twenty eighth. It was so December twenty eighth because she had come up, as I was saying, um, to go out to dinner with us for our, our oldest son Matthew's birthday. Mm. My mom had been down for the holidays, and so we all went out. And again, she lived in—you know—she lived in Orlando, so we, we were in Lake Mary, just uh, maybe twenty minutes away. And then, sounds like uh, so you guys were a fairly close family. It sounds like. Well, I mean, as close as family can be geographically, right? Because everybody said, well, when we move to Florida, it's going to be a lot easier. Well, guess what? You know, <laughs> if you're in Orlando, you know, two hours to Jacksonville, four hours to Tallahassee, you know, two plus hours to Tampa. So it's- It looks like, closer you know, on a map. <laughs> yeah, right. It's not, like, it's not like around the corner, you know, so that, you know, so, you know, it's usually going to be specific- uh, you know, you're planning to get together because it's not like it's just a pickup on a whim. You're going to drive around the corner, get together, you know, for dinner or, or you know, at each other's houses. Everything requires a drive. But yeah, um, I am. Um, I once had a uh, friend say to me, I had said, you know, I wish I had more time with my mom, right? Like thinking about like, oh, the times that I didn't go visit or there was an event that I missed. And he said to me, we always don't have enough time. No. There's never enough time. And I think that that's one of those things like with your mom's loss, with Jennifer, or anybody that goes through these circumstances, you all of a sudden beget, you, you then reframe and realize so much of our life is, is about minutes, right? We're counting minutes, hours, what, whatever time, you know, things need to take or we're involved in whatever. But the reality of this life is lived in moments. And so now mm. one of the things that I do when I'm sending out little notes to people, I say, you know, whatever they're doing, I say, hey, create some, create great moments and memories because those are the things that you're going to hold on to. The minutes you won't even think about, you're not going to be thinking about any specific minutes, you know, or hours or anything like that, but you're going to remember the moments that created memories mm. with people that you're investing your life with. Yeah. That's such a powerful way to think about it because- you know, I think about the people that I often talk to or work with and, you know, it, they'll often, I, I can give you this one example of um, one of my clients who recently came to me and they said, you know, I'm trying to figure out whether I'm in love with this person, right? And, it, you know, I was somewhat suspicious because I think they had already figured that out. Um, but they, <laughs> they immediately rolled to all the worries, like, well, will I not move? Will I X, Y, or Z? Or how would these people react to it? And I'm thinking to myself the whole time, like, you just told me you were in love with someone, and now you're moving straight to worry. <laughs> worry. Worry about the future. Worry about other times. Like, maybe sit in that moment. And exactly. That moment you have with people and enjoy it. And it's, it's interesting, too, in reading your book and thinking about the evolution of your thinking. You know, at the beginning of the book, I can tell that it was exhausting for you all 
it was emotionally hard for you. And yep. I, and, and I recognize like grief, it morphs, it changes. It, it, it is definitely not linear. I've, I've learned. And I'm curious, what, what did it feel like? And what was it like in the early part of the investigation? And how did it like uh, evolve into sort of where you are today and the message yeah. that you're sending today? Yeah. I mean, that's a great question. I mean, I think, you know, it's a great observation. I mean, the reality of it is like many of us, um, we went from watching the news, right? Which, which, so there's a distance and there's a disconnect, but you're watching the news. And then one day you are the news, right? Mm-hmm. Because in, in those, uh, you know, especially after the car was was located, I mean, local media was really aggressive and, and keeping Jennifer's story, the car, different things and, 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 you know, in front of people. And so you couldn't escape it. I mean, it was just, it was on the news continuously, which was good for Jennifer, but also challenging uh, for us that were in the midst of it because the, the emotional roller coaster, I mean, just, just that, you know, that immediate thing, I flew, I flew back to Orlando. I arrived at the condo, Drew had already had, you know, flyers, people were doing things. And then, you and know, I imagine I, you're sitting on the plane hoping oh, yeah. by the well, time yeah, this plane lands, yeah, they're going to call exactly. me and tell me everything's okay. Exactly. And um, and then, of course, you know, we're guys, right? So guys, we kind of jump into fix-it mode. And so I started immediately thinking about all the things that, you know, to anticipate what we ought to be doing. And, of course, having been involved in, in, in run numerous uh, campaigns, you know, I immediately started thinking about like a street by street search and stuff like that. So we got some local maps and we, we began. Oh, so to, you were sort of modeling it like a political campaign. Yes, almost. exactly. Canvas the neighborhood. Yes, exactly. Because the, the first thing, you know, in the very beginning, her car was missing. Right. So the first thing was obviously let, let's see if we can find the car. Because, you know, if we find the car, it may provide a clue to of, of what's the next thing that we need to be looking for. And so we began that process and it was so, so ironic uh, the next morning when, when the woman that lived at Huntington Greens made the call and said that, hey, I think that car you're showing on the news is in front of my building. That's the apartment complex where the one, car was? One mile okay. away from where Jen was. Um, and, um, my, my, when, and then when Drew gave us the call and told us, uh, my, my wife, my sister Margie and I, we just looked at each other We're like our, son, our, our stomachs sunk because we were in the neighborhood right across the street and that was going to be our next place on the grid that we had had given you know that that we were working um and but it was like uh, it was like midnight one in the morning and we just figured all right look we're all tired we're exhausted you know we'll, we'll restart in the morning but the morning was when we found out that the car had been reported there and then from that moment on, this went from like, let's say a 20 mile an hour something, it went to 80, 120, like immediately because the police now all of a sudden realized whatever they might have thought, right, about what had happened mm-hmm. changed when the car was found because it wasn't where it should be. When they eventually got the uh, the video surveillance from the apartment complex, though it was you know not good quality and so forth, uh, it was clear that somebody else other than Jen dropped that car off that escalated everything. Like this was not just somebody that just wandered away, had a fight, whatever, something happened. Right. And then, and then, you know, dog, uh, dog teams are out, you know, blood, the bloodhounds, they had, you know, one of our neighbors in Lake Mary, 
was uh, involved with the Orange County uh, Mounted uh, Police. So he, he got his unit to agree to do kind of quite a, a training mission, but they went out into the woods in the area. So, I mean, you had dogs, you had horses, you had helicopters. I mean, there was just an awful lot of activity in that general radius to see if Jennifer could be located. So that it was, you know, the emotional roller coaster was just unbelievable. One of the things that I I always wonder about, you know, in my previous life, I was a reporter and I saw a little bit of this, but, you know, when there is a case like this, inevitably the police, you know, the pattern tends to be that they need to eliminate the family, eliminate the loved ones, probably eliminate the boyfriend. And at the same time, you're desperately searching for the person. And at the same time, you have all this media attention on you too that can help solve the case, but is also exhausting. What does it feel like as a family member in that moment? So many conflicting things, I imagine, going on in emotion. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's, it's you know, it'd be like being on a roller coaster um, that's uh, that's out of control. So you're getting panicky because the whole thing is out of control, and I, and I think that that's the you know the challenge because you move from you know, law enforcement take you know believing uh, taking the narrative and believing that well you know she's an adult she probably just had a you know fight with her boyfriend and she just decide to take a couple of days on her own and everything will work itself out. Two, boom, you know something clearly happened, and then all of a sudden, as you said, now all of a sudden they have to the police have to now start doing the things like ruling out family members, investigating this. But by that time, think about it. She you know. By the time they found the car, it was almost two days, there were dozens and dozens of people in and out of her condo because the police never, I mean, they never, you know, really investigated the condo because in the beginning, they just assumed she, you know, she just, you know, went out on her own and she'd be back. So there was lost opportunity there. Um, So there was just, there was just so many conflicting things. And then, and then sadly, I, I would agree with what you just said that with all the media attention, some of the people, the workers specifically that were on site, probably panicked and left because we know uh, that there were, were there were a lot of workers that we would see there over those couple of day period. You that know, was near the condo, right? Yeah, yeah, because yeah. the condos were the apartment complex was under a conversion to condo, so there's a lot of workers generally in all mm. these. And all of a sudden, you weren't seeing the same vans or you weren't seeing the same people. And so there you go. I mean, so in, in some respects, all the attention, I mean, because this was all happening on property. I mean, law it cuts both ways, media, right? Yeah, it, exactly. It cuts both ways. And so in yeah. some respects, some of those people probably just took off never to return again. And then that was only compounded by the fact that, um, you know, police th- didn't do as thorough uh, an investigation or interviewing process of a lot of the workers when they were available. Um, and so in those first few days, yeah, there was just lost opportunity after opportunity. And, you know, as you all know, from your, your past experience that when you, when you lose those opportunities, you can't get them back. Yeah. 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 I, I am. And, and I think that's one of the like things that as an outsider, you know, you, in, in coverage of a case, you may not get as much, I think reporters may get a little bit more family members probably get a deeper understanding of like those missed opportunities right in front of you where you feel like they're just outside of your grasp. If they had just 
reached like one inch further or if they right. had just spent one more hour interviewing. And the, the other thing that strikes me just from being in those situations is, you know, a lot makes it into the news, but what doesn't make it in the news are the 10 rumors we heard that day, which is like, you know, oh, this person was cited here or, oh, this thing happened. And it's just gut-wrenching. You know, I know how crazy it was for us as reporters, but I can't imagine for a family, you know. Oh, that was those- that was insane. Yeah, that yeah. that aspect was insane. And and you know, Drew, my brother-in-law, uh, quickly d- decided, and 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 if I were in his shoes, I would have made the same decision. Is that at some point you can't have in in that particular case, can't have my sister and my nephew so deeply involved that now you have three people that are being torn apart, you know, to the same level. So he, he assumed the, you know, 99% of the load in terms of fielding a lot of stuff just to be protective of my sister and my nephew because, and and the rest of the family for that matter, because just as you said, there was so much that was coming constantly psychics making phone calls, people demanding money, you know, the sightings and it, it was just crazy. And it, and it, and it really hasn't ended. I mean, for years, you know, they would be getting threats. They'd have people making crank calls, knew where they lived. I mean, it's just, yeah. Oh yeah. No, no. I mean, and, and that's why when we, when I was going through the process with this book, I, I was really clear with them and the editors and the people I was working with that I'm not, this was not going to be a true crime story. Uh, I wanted to I wanted to discuss Jennifer's uh, story as a catalytic event in my life, and then talk about that journey because I really believe that the story, the untold story about all that stuff you were just uh, talking about, is really uh, Joyce and Drew's to, sh- to share. And I and I hope that they do tell it one day, so that that maybe there we, a difference can be made in the way in which these cases are handled. But yeah. We're at CrimeCon. I was at CrimeCon. That was 17 years when I was there, you know, when we were there in Orlando last September. The number of people, family members, uh, you know, that came by because they got lost, lost, missing lost ones as well. It was heartbreaking because their story after story was almost identical. And you sit yeah. there and you to yourself, have we not learned anything? Do you remember that part in CrimeCon? where it was um, near some of the breakout rooms for some of the big events. And they had that, um, it wasn't a wall, but it was a collage. Yes. Yes. Yep. Collage of all the faces of those missing people. And then the, and then the little sticky notes of people that were putting their own con. That was just a, that was a, a memory wall. That was great. Memory wall. That was so powerful and so sad. Yes. So unbelievable as a family member when we looked at all those notes i took pictures of those and sent them to my sister and brother-in-law it's just to realize i mean just what the people that my wife that came up to my wife and i and just i mean from around the country there were some people out of the country in fact that were following her case and so you realize that you know that jen's case has received uh attention worldwide and that even though it's been all these years later, people still care. They're still praying. They still want the family to, to get peace, to have resolution. That was just, to me, that was the aspect to say, that's, that's the real man, mankind. It's not what the media constantly mm. is showing us where everybody is divisive. You know, I, I just, I don't see that. I mean, there's a certain humanity. Yeah, there's a certain humanity in exactly. that. Yeah. Exactly. 
Yeah. And the love and the compassion and the care people come up and say, can I give you a hug? You know, or, Hey, would you pass this hug on to your sister for us? Or, Mm. you know, it was amazing. And it's so powerful too, because I think so often to your point, what we see in the media is the conflict or the, the untethering of our communities, but there are these pockets where you really have this richness of love. Like you had a, probably hundreds of people around you who had heard of that case, who have never yes. met your family, who care about the outcome, who care about the well-being of your um, family. And, you know, I hope and your, your uh, listeners, if, and to, you know, for your listeners, if they, if they aren't followers, I will say that in the early days, you know, I, after watching a few things, I stopped, I stopped because in the early days, back in the 2004, five, six uh, era, um, you know, a lot of the, the spin was more on the sensationalizing of the case for promotion, right? Average, whatever. Mm-hmm. And it just, that turned me off. And so it really wasn't until this a year ago, uh, January, friends of ours here in Midlothian put a post up, you know, on the 17th anniversary. And so one of their neighbors um, reached out to them and said, Hey, kind of curious, um, you know, how are you familiar with that case? Because, you know, we're here in Virginia. How would you hear about a case from, from Florida. So Debbie and Chris uh, said to their friend, to their neighbor, um, well, we know the uncle. Mm. And so, uh, so it turns out Heather is a, a, a true crime podcast host. Uh, hers is b- a big mad true crime. She was Heather at- Ashley. Really? Yeah, Heather Ashley. <laughs> yes. I'm familiar. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, so uh, they connected us and then we, we, we spent a couple of hours for coffee and I, I, I she just, was so great, helped me to understand um, what the real true uh, crime community is all about. It's really about the compassion, the care, the desire to see uh, results for families. And, you know, so obviously she shared some of the stuff that she's done and others have done. So she was the reason, she was the one that really uh, helped coerce me, if you will, but <laughs> gently, that that I should be attending and uh, being at cr- true crime and, I mean, at, at CrimeCon. And everything that she said about the community hundred percent true. Yeah. And it's a fascinating thing that there are all these challenges to the, I guess, the devolution of the mainstream media, like real problems that exist. But one of the things that's happened is it's opened the door, whether it's through blogs or whether it's through podcasts or other spaces for people to pay attention with a greater depth and compassion to a lot. And I'm not saying that this always happens. But um, to cases, and that was one of the surprising thing of, for me of being uh, plugged into the true crime community was how much love is there. It's yep. an amazing amount of um, love and compassion. So thinking about those early days when it was exhausting and it was hard, what was your, you know, one of the things that, you know, you just mentioned it before about being so sort of encouraged by the support of her friends at the same time, sort of the difficulties emotionally and difficulties with rumors and law enforcement and other things like that. But, you know, in thinking about that case, like hindsight is always twenty twenty when we go back and we look at things, but, you know, over time, clearly there were a number of setbacks in the case and difficult things that went wrong. And, you know, reading her book, and sort of contrasting all the challenges with the case, it's such a hopeful, hopeful message. 
Well, and it's almost hard to understand how you find so much hope and so much grief and pain. Yeah, you know, it's interesting to go back at our top of our conversation. You mentioned the Tolkien quote, and also mm-hmm. uh, Stephen Colbert, and and I understand. I mean, um, I understand that that th- those things are often said, but I think. Um, what I, and because again, I talk about the fact that one of the early things that I did was uh, through a friend got invited to, um, an in-depth Bible study that year we happened to be doing, um, Romans, but for me, Romans 828 became a life verse for many years because it became clear to me that, you know, God will use all the circumstances of our life to bring about good, which doesn't mean that the, the circumstances are good. And it certainly doesn't mean that God caused those circumstances. And so I think that's where, you know, I, f- from my point of view, I want to be sure that people understand that, you know, where we're, I understand the Tolkien and Colbert, that there is certainly levels of divine judgment, punishment, and things of that nature. But for most of us, for the majority of people, you know, we're just living in a fallen world and, and we either suffer the consequences of decisions that we make, choices we make, or... We're going to be put in a position that we're going to we're going to suffer as a result of decisions or choices other people made. Other people like, make right, as in the case of an abduction, or it could be anything. But but the so one- Bill Bill get yep. this. Guess what my mom's favorite Bible verse is Romans eight Romans eight twenty eight. All yeah, that all things work together for the good of those who love the Lord and yep. who are called together for His purpose. And I think the hard thing, and I, I did talk about this, is that one of the challenges, there's just so many mysteries of things uh, having to do with uh, the Bible and God's Word. But, and there's some things you're just never going to understand. But we should focus on the things that we know to be true, things that we know to be undeniable. And so, you know, my takeaway was that when I got to the lowest point, as a, so the, so the, when you think about the flip side of all of the the energy, the adrenaline, the emotion that was going on a, on a day-to-day basis, those evening hours were what really were my most um, challenging times personally, Difficult. because it was in those moments that I began to compare and reflect on my own life and realize the mess that it was in. Mm. One of the things that you mentioned in there, you you said in the book that you had left the church when you were younger, teenager, yes. 14. Yeah. And you had mentioned that it, part of what really was a struggle for you was the element of how fear drove things. Um, yes. And, you know, but you said that, and this really struck me as odd, and I think you found it odd based on the way that you wrote it, that after Jen's disappearance, you found yourself crying out to God and that it made no sense, right? That that was happening. And then you mentioned the problem of pain, the C.S. Lewis book where he said, you know, God whispers to us our pleasures, speaks in our conscious, but shouts in our pains. And I thought, oh, okay. Okay. And that was a, and that was a very painful period. And so I think what happens is, is what I've certainly learned now over all these years is that number one, God is always speaking. He hasn't stopped speaking. And the the problem is, is that if, you know, those of us that are old enough, remember the old radios had tuners. So you had to tune them to be able to get that frequency right. Otherwise you'd get a lot of static. 
Well, we have a lot of static in our life because we have a lot of distractions in our life. We have a lot of things that take our focus off of the ability to listen correctly. And so some of the things that I was taught, you know, as a young person in the church that we belong to, you know, it was about a God of fear. It was about behavior. It was about so many things. And and even I can remember thinking this didn't even make any sense, but you know what, you, you got to go through the motions. So the moment that I was 14 and was confirmed, I, I, I walked, I said, I'm, I don't want anything to do with this again. You called it a nightmare. It, it was because it it's like, how can you, yeah, because how can you ever live up to the behavioral uh, aspect that they were promoting? And especially with fear was the stick, right? So if, if everything was, it was about fear behavior that God's going to get you. Well, then like, what's the point of trying? Right. Because so, I'm never going to live up. Exactly. Never going to live up. Well, what I now, what I began to learn right after Jen's abduction, and I, and again, I think it's actually very interesting because I share this with people that, you know, that at any time, if you've ever cried out to God and asked for help, you've actually said some, I mean, you've actually taken a step that you may not even realize, right? First, you believe there's a God. Number two, that you believe he knows who you are. And three, you believe that he cares about what's bothering you. So that that's a great starting place, you know, to, to kind of rebuild your faith orientation. And so for me, that was part of the journey was moving from the childhood experience and then learning, you know, get, getting a new starting point as an adult. And God in a different way. In a different way. And that's when I, that that's what's been transform, uh, transformative. He didn't change. Right. It was the way in which it was presented that the changed. filter, the filter that you were taught. Exactly. Again, I think seemed. the sad part for me is uh, that I, you know, I know from, you know, many of my older family members and stuff, they all had that. So, you know, they, mm. so we, we've got a lot of people that have a lot of unlearning, <laughs> right, to do. Today. Um, just based on the things that they were originally taught or the, the things that they've carried through in their life that are just flat out wrong. Um, and that's one of the reasons why I wanted to write this book was to basically help inspire hope that everybody can start their journey from wherever they are. Right, right. And God's going to meet them in their specific place. One of the things I wanted to ask you about, just given where you are right now, like, how do you, and this is a personal struggle of mine, has always been, but how do you reconcile that idea of a good and all-powerful God with the fact that there is so much evil and so much suffering in this world? Well, I don't think that the evil in that, I don't think that's, that's, uh, I don't think that that's an argument for or against, uh, a, you know, a divine being uh, or God or the God of the, of the Hebrew Bible or the Christian Bible. But, you know, in some respects, if, if we listen to the story. What do you mean by that part? The, well, the- what I mean is that um, unless you, uh, unless we are, become a student and understand what God has provided for us, right? So he's left words for us to know, and it's up for us to, <clears throat> to know them. And so when you look at biblical history, you basically see that from the moment that God spoke creation into existence, each day it was good. And mankind was the pinnacle of creation. So from the very beginning, everything was good, but you know <clears throat> we weren't created to be robots. So we were given the ability to think and to make choices, what people call free will. 
So there was only, and we think about it today because we all know this. I mean, we, we all push up against rules, laws. I don't care what, you know, the natural tendency when we're given a set of things to not do is we want to do them. <laughs> yes, okay. yes. I mean, that's just, you know, that's just, that's just part of tell it. Me, tell me I can't do something is and the I'm gonna do it, way to get right? me to do it. Right? Exactly. But when you think about it, in the very beginning, there was only one thing that Adam and Eve were told not to do. And that was not to eat of the fruit of, of a specific tree. And so they only had one thing. They didn't have a list of 100. They, you know, they didn't have 600 laws as the, uh, you know, the Jewish uh, religious leaders ultimately added to their list of ways to, to drive behavior. Um, there was one thing. And that one thing that they were, they, were, they were tempted into doing what they wanted to do because it, it was, as, as the scripture tells us, it was appealing to the eye. And all they needed was a little bit of a nudge to say, hey, you know, God doesn't want you to eat that because, so in other words, you think you're going to be deprived of something. And that just, carry, you know, that just carries forward to, to, to this day. And so, so, about, so with that, with that thought, right, that in a way, right, like that we as, as humans have brought the part, the evil into the world, but what about the suffering? Well, that's just a natural part of it. I mean, uh, because as we were just talking about, we have choice. We, we ultimately can suffer uh, in a variety of ways from choices that we make. So whether it's financial, relational, um, uh, physically, if we, we have medical problems or something like that. And then there's also those things that, that we have to deal with as a result of the decisions or choices of other people. So that we, we all can appreciate that. Well, that's interesting because, you know, when you describe that, I, it takes me away from sort of like the idea of us as an individual, right? That like my yep. choices will lead to my suffering to that we're a broader community and that my choices can also lead to other people's suffering. Well, absolutely. And, and we know that because we, we've we all, you know, if we've been in relationship or in families, we've seen that decisions of certain family members can impact families. So, so there's this idea of community. And I think that's the beauty uh, of really, you know, of studying um, the biblical history is that in the, in, in the Hebrew scriptures, right, what we see is this evolution of, of God ultimately choosing one family and watching this family go through, just as if we were looking at, a, at one of our own families in real time, but over the course of time, we see the foils and the, and the you know, the, the trials, the tribulations and so forth. And so all of that was set up. So that when, when Jesus came to earth, it was now, as he said, he came to fulfill the law. He didn't come to abolish it. He came to fulfill it. He, became, he came to give us a visible example of the character and heart of God. And he did that through his three years of ministry, right? And his words, his actions, the, the way in which he loved people. And then he said that, you know, when he, by him leaving, he would be by him leaving, we have we, we he would be sending the Holy Spirit. We would have access to the Holy Spirit that would give us the ability to be transformed, to try to live out in in in, in our sinful ways, right? But to live out a way that that is more closely Christ-like. And we're not going to get there on our own because if we could, we would. We haven't, and that was I think when you look at biblical history from from the from the Hebrew scriptures. They tried, there were periods of time they were doing well, then they revert. So it's not something that we can ever get from a consistency perspective. But you also see that whether it was in biblical history or even today, decisions of leaders impact community, impact nations. 
So again, this is not a, a concept that's that's hard to understand or believe in because we're living it. You know, yeah. we, we see, right? So so it's just now the we're just politicians tra- we pick, the yeah, exactly. choices so, we make about who leads everything from the company to the local government, all yeah. All has a ripple effect. And then it and then you wonder why there's so much divisiveness and, and you know the trials and tribulations throughout the world, but but again. You know, uh, God made it clear that 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 would always be the way until Christ returns. So none of this should surprise us. And again, that's the only benefit. And that's why I would certainly encourage people, um, you know, to get into a situation where you can, you know, really learn from history and and start with biblical history, because that's the part that has the greatest connection to our lives and our ability to live lives that not only are better for ourselves, but better for our families, our communities, our workplaces, and so forth. I mean, if you think that back when Jesus walked the earth, he had his 12, then he had, you know, there were hundreds of people that were were, were a solid followers. But after his death, those people decided that they would continue to live in the power of the Holy Spirit in a countercultural way. And we're still talking about it 2,000 years later. I mean, in the in in the early centuries, you know, they were distinguished because at a moment, and I talk about it a little bit of this in one of the sections of the book, where in, in that time, I mean, children were just nothing. I mean, women were nothing either, but children were. I mean, you could if you didn't want your kid, you could just leave them, you know, at the at, at the uh, city wall and just leave them what they called exposure to just die. And and followers of Jesus in those days would go and take those kids and raise them as if they're own. They would care for them and love them. That was countercultural. So there was a lot of countercultural things that were going on that that propelled this idea of uh, being a Christian or a Christ follower. That raised that it, it 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 raised an awareness that people started to notice, and that was exactly what God had planned. Right, that's what He wants for all of us: is that we be image bearers, so that the people that are in our our sphere of influence see something different about us a consistent something, and then they want to know more about it. So his multiplication- That's so fascinating. Yeah, his multiplication that, process is very different than ours. Yeah, it's so fascinating to me to think that example, just, you know, giving, given what happened to Jen, but that example of parents being able to leave their kids at the city wall, we're so yeah. different today. We're so- Exactly. Exactly. So, I mean, right. But- but again, I think that the challenge and all these things, the story, your story with Monty that I listened to, when you when you look down to all of these stories and when you look at your entire career, or if I look at my life, so much of the intersection of the things that go wrong is a matter of heart, just mm-hmm. as on the flip side, the things that go right are a matter of the heart. So the human heart is at the center of, right? Everything that's going to be about how we are as individuals, as families, as communities, as a nation, as a as a as a as people in this world. Of and and we often put the focus on the bad that the human heart causes. Right. But I think part of what you're getting at is that there's so much opportunity for good to come from it. And you know, one of the things, and I I believe this firmly, and I certainly felt this in the book, but even though I feel this deeply, I was really taken aback by how humble 
you are when you write. You, you know, you accept that that you don't have all the answers. How vulnerable you were when you wrote. Um, there's that story where you talk about you and your wife before Jen's disappearance. And there's this quote that you say that you would hold tightly to the, your different sides of the mattress to avoid touching each other. And there's this one moment in there where you write about, I think it was your wife not wearing her wedding ring, or maybe it was her engagement ring and her wedding ring. It was both. Yeah. Both. And it was for a month and you hadn't even noticed it. Exactly. And one of the things that really, I, you know, in, in the book, you write about this idea of how Jen's disappearance changed the way that you built and I guess maintained and viewed relationships. Could yeah, you I was like, got a little to, bit of that? Yeah, I got to the end of myself. And in fact, it's interesting that you bring that up. And I, and thank you for that, because that was one of the things that I believe that the Lord was really clear with me is that I was going to be, uh, uh, vulnerable and authentic to basically show the way that it's okay to do that because the truth is we all know it's true, <laughs> right? But we just may not feel like we should share that. And, and one of the early editors uh, from with Georgetown at the time, um, uh, Cassandra was said- That Georgetown uh, Press? Or- uh, it was yeah, uh, Georgetown, uh, the Creator Institute at Georgetown. Oh, University. yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that was the program I was in uh, to do the writing of the book. And okay. she said to me one time, she's a lawyer and a writer herself, and she said to me one time on that particular chapter, she said, does your wife know what you're writing? And I said, <laughs> well, I said, well, I said, well, actually, she does only because we've lived it, one, two, we've shared it in community group. But yes, no, she hasn't read what I've actually written, but she will. And we had agreed that until the book was at its uh, near final manuscript, she wasn't going to actually read it. Um, but uh, no, I mean, it wasn't, and it wasn't, it didn't surprise her because it was true. <laughs> you know? Right. But yeah. But Jennifer's, you know, those early nights, I can just tell you that, well, we're, you know, we're, we're doing what we're supposed to do during the day, the, at night. That, that was hard because I realized in that moment, um, in those moments that I had made an absolute mess of my life. And I remember mm-hmm. crying out again, I'm talking to the God. And, I, and again, it wasn't that I didn't believe there was a God. I had walked away from church. So there's two, I make that, make that a really clear distinction. Distinction. Yeah. Yeah. I think it, people often confuse yes. religion with their relationship with God or the religious institutions with their relationship exactly. with God. And those are, and those are all, you know, generally men. Right. So I always make, it clear, <laughs> you know, I, I always make it clear that, you know, I mean, first of all, Jesus didn't come to start a religion. He came to help, help show us a way to have a, a restored relationship with him and the father. So it's all about relationships, not about religion. But um, you know, in those early days when I was crying out, I, I remember so clearly, saying to God, you know, and, and I mean, it was emotional, teary that uh, I was going to, you know, I would absolutely miss my family and everything else. But I, I'd say, Lord, just take my life. Jennifer deserves, she's starting out new. She deserves her life. And I'm telling you, I prayed that for a good couple of weeks. And then I finally realized that, well, well that's kind of foolish. That's not going to happen. And then, of course, I shared later that on the on the day November fourteenth of that year, when I went and, had, and was baptized, the day before I was I had just pulled into a physical therapy practice up in Ocala, Florida. Got there a little earlier, so I was just in, in a little bit of quiet time, and I heard so clearly in my heart, "Your prayer was answered." 
And I, I literally did a double mm. take. And then all of a sudden I realized, wait a minute, the next day when I was going to be baptized, that is a symbol of death and resurrection, right? You're dying to self and then you're being reborn um, into new life through Christ. That you've and been so taken. He, it, it, right. So it was, oh, I, it yeah. wasn't what I was expecting, right? When I was doing those early prayers in January, but it, but it also helped solidify to me what this concept is that Jesus talked about dying to self in order to follow him, meaning that you know, we give up our own desires, our own wants, our own needs, essentially. And we live, instead of living inwardly or self-focused, we live outwardly and other focus, right? We always are thinking, how can we make somebody else's life better? How can I contribute um, in, that, in, some, in some way um, for, for others? And that was really the pivotal point for me. And, as, and, I, and that's what I wanted to lay that out in the book is that I don't think you escape at some level um, if you're going to move towards transformation, just like when a caterpillar is going through the metamorphosis, which is actually the Greek word that's used in the Bible for uh, this mm-hmm. concept of transformation is that without the struggle, right, a butterfly is not going to emerge from the uh, chrysalis. Mm-hmm. So, I, I mean, so you begin to start to see that a lot of the imagery that has been provided to us is really things we can relate to. Illustrate things, yeah, that we find. Yeah, because if we wanted to help, if we wanted to help the caterpillar along, it would never become a butterfly. It needs it needs the struggle to evolve to the beautiful thing it's going to become. And the same thing is true in our lives. So in that moment, right? Like just jumping back a second and thinking about that transformation and that change and that early moment where you felt and said that because I can I can relate to this because I actually said it after my mom died because yep. she was such a wonderful person. She was the best of us. There's absolutely no question. We all agree she was the best of us. And I would have, and I've never felt this feeling like this, I would have given my life in that moment at 6.37 um, on that Friday, I would have given my life for her to be able to go on in that moment. Did you, did you really feel that? I did feel, and I'm going to say to you, I think that that's the gift that your mom's death gave to you because for you to be able to say that and acknowledge that and mean that meant that the, her being the best example and best of us, you now were aware of it and you now can become that. So now the baton's been passed to you. So for me, I moved from that crying out to recognizing that, that, you know what, that's not going to happen that way, but it's almost an uncanny thing that there was this peace that I had that I didn't even understand. And then as I detail in the book, then then from that moment, there was just a series of invitations. And that idea too, that we give life to them, right? Like they've passed on from this mortal world, but we carry on the best of them in us. And we have this opportunity, like you're saying, to be reborn, essentially. Yeah, Yeah, I mean, to carry on the best of of those that have preceded us. And I think maybe it's because they've passed now, those memories are, so it was the same thing when my dad passed. I remember that was back in January of uh, 2012. You know, of course, one of the challenges uh, you certainly were, and your listeners will appreciate as well that, you know, once as adults, we move on, um, you know, there's a disconnect 
with our families. And in our case, you know, we moved an hour south in New Jersey, then we moved to Florida. So we're not really that actively involved in our parents' lives. So we don't, you know, we don't know, you know, their daily routines necessarily and the people they interact with. But my father went through a number of uh, health issues and uh, cancers and so forth, but um, he never let it get him down. He, he fortunately uh, came t- uh, t- to uh, the Lord, and that was through my stepmother, Madeline. And, um, but he used, my father finished well, he didn't start off well, he finished well. <clears throat> and at his funeral, he died over Martin Luther King weekend, uh, in 2012. My, we had all gone up there because he what, had gone What did you mean? What did you mean by that? He didn't start off well, but he finished yeah, well? Well, just like I detail for myself, uh, in the book, I, I didn't start off well either. I mean, yeah, my father didn't, didn't have all the things working right. You know, most guys, especially in those generations, you know, it was all about the guy, you know, you know, self-made man, you know, you, 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 you become self-absorbed about everything that you're doing that you think you're the center of everything. Mm. Um, and you know, those are just things that a very sort of individualistic. So yes. Yeah. yeah there's a lot of, a lot of, of that, that men grow up with, I think more so than women generally. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, especially the, of the older generations, but, um, you know, but he used every opportunity always had a smile, always was there to help somebody out and use that as an opportunity to open up conversations, which it would. But he died on a Saturday, which was Martin Luther King. Most of us, we had all arrived because he had gone into hospice. So it was like, well, okay, well, we're all here. And so we were able to pull together his uh, memorial service, like within a day or two, he was a deacon at his church. And so we had it there, but that day it was overflow. They had to set up chairs outside the, uh, the sanctuary there was probably 350 people that came out. We were, my, my, my sister and I, we were blown away. And the number of people that would say, oh, your father this, your father that. I mean, he had regular routines of things that he did. So <laughs> That you had no idea about, right? Exactly. I mean, I knew some of them. You know, I knew some of the things. But, it, but, the, but there's where that, that multiplication process where by the way in which he lived, he touched so many lives. And then those lives are going to ripple out, right? So one person, right? Each of us has the opportunity. If we do this and live this life right, right? We can create a ripple effect that will will continue on through the generations. Do you think that Chen also did that? Like in thinking about what you were saying about- Yeah, I would yeah, I think care. that- Cut short, but I do know from a conversation <clears throat> that I had with Rob is that Jennifer on her own had already been 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 more becoming more spiritual used term that I believe he used to me and so but and and I don't know uh, I, I think in the book i I show the picture of the pendant, so the pendant for me that there, there was a moment in time when our church it was uh, December of two thousand and seven. Um, our pastor was calling for uh, a churchwide fast beginning in January of 2008. And, the, and ironically, my dad and I had gone to a men's conference that summer. And for no known reason, I just happened to see a book on a table. <clears throat> it was by Bill Bright, the founder of Campus Crusade for Christ. For Christ and it was on yeah. fasting. So I picked it up, <clears throat> but didn't read it. But then when the church called for that, I picked up the book and I began reading it. And then all of a sudden something stirred in me and I realized that I, if I wanted to really deepen my relationship with God, that I was going to have to do something intentional that was going to allow that to help facilitate that. So I decided to do, starting January 1st of 2008, 
I did a 40 day fast and I followed the, the pattern that Bill Bright laid out. And I want to tell you that was for me, that, that, that was the first fast, but I've done a fast. I started every year now since then with a fast just to help for a reconnection. But that particular one really helped me see how, and, and one of the reasons when Jesus talked about fasting, he didn't talk about it as if it was just optional. He talk, talked about it as if it's something we were going to regularly do. And I began to realize going through it the first time myself was that that's the first opportunity that he has to be able to demonstrate that he can control um, that physiological need for food. And it was just absolutely amazing. People couldn't believe it. I'm cooking for my family. I'm doing all kinds of things. I wasn't hungry. In the in the book, you talk about that dependent, yeah. and yeah. you talk about like how it uh, brings peace and hope. And I think you had you had mentioned, I think, in there that you know just that that heart shaped pendant. And I think it says yes. a name on it, right, Jennifer? Yeah. So that. And I apologize. You turned it over. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I apologize. Yeah. I was on that train of thought. But so, so that particular, there was a Sunday, the 23rd of December of 2007. I was out for a walk with my son's dog and I was just praying. And I'll never forget, I, I happened to be talking about the situation with Jennifer, just looking for answers. And I made a commitment. I said to the Lord, I'm going to, I'm going to, I am going to start January uh, of 2008 with a fast. And I want to do this because I want to know you better, but I also want answers about Jennifer. And at that very moment, um, light was began reflecting off the pavement. It was right at the grass edge. And uh, so it obviously caught my eye. So I walked over to where I saw the light. Um, you know, uh, it was coming off of this item on the... And, and so when I bent down, I could see it was this silver pendant. It was a heart-shaped pendant. When I t- picked it up and turned it over, it had the name Jennifer on it. Mm. That moment, I can't even express in words, how I felt, but there was this peace. And I looked and I remember thinking to myself, I can't believe it. You gave me a tangible reason to be hopeful. And so from that point, as soon as I got home, I showed it my wife, I called my sister and I gave, ultimately gave that to my sister. And I just thought to myself, from that moment forward, I have been at peace that God has Jennifer's heart. I think that mm-hmm. was what he was telling me was I have her heart. And so whether she's alive or she's not, if he has her heart, then she's protected. She's in the best place that she can be. Right. And so then that kind of confirmed when I, when I had had that conversation with Rob and realized that she, she had begun moving and was seeking on her own. Then that to me was confirmation that That's so she, she's in a good place. That's powerful. I, I'm just curious and thinking about what you've, what you said there, do you think there's a part of you that still holds out hope that she might be alive? There is. And part of that is that um, when you think about, there's been so many cases over the years of people who have been abducted and held for excessive periods of time. I th- Tracy Drew- Drugard is an example, I think. I don't remember exactly if it was 17 or 18 years, but she was held <clears throat> for a very long time. I think it was probably around 17, 18 years. So when you see that a case like that can break and be resolved, then why should it not happen for us? Right. That's the, is that the, that's the one that served as the basis for the room, that movie where the woman was, um, I don't know if you've ever seen it, but she was, uh, 
she was um kept in a room inside the basement of a house for years. And I remember yep. when I was up in New York, I covered a very similar story where they found a woman um, underground. And then in Cleveland, there was that guy who had them. Um, yeah, that's right. I think it was like five, four or five women in that case in Cleveland. Yeah. And, and I mean, Brie Larson does just such an amazing job in that, um, that powerful job in that, um, film, but one of the most striking, I think, moments about the whole story is when she's reunited with her family. Right. Um, you know, so much had changed since she was gone. Um, and I can imagine it would be so difficult, but there's just, I think in your message, something interesting that stands out to me. It's almost as if you feel you guys are going to be reunited with her, no matter what, whether it's on earth or it's in heaven. Exactly. Yep. And I'll never forget my sister whispering to my father, um, you know, before he passed, you know, just in case, you know, just in case, you know, keep looking for Jen up there, you know, to see if, you know, try to get an answer to us. We'll have search teams both on heaven and on earth. Exactly. Because obviously, you know, I mean, the reality of it is, as Drew posted in his update for this, this week, someone knows something. And as, like, as we've been talking about the importance of our hearts, I mean, he said something in his, his update that really is just, I mean, how does somebody do something like this? And if you were pe- someone that might know these people or person, how can you live with yourselves? I mean, how do you go to sleep at night? How does your conscience not really wear you out, after, especially after all these years? And when is it that you finally decide that I'm, you're just going to, you know, you're just going to come forward and just bring closure, not, you know, you know, bring peace to yourself potentially. Right. Just tell the yeah. truth. And it just recently actually happened in Michigan where, a, um, he was a, a convict and I think he'd been convicted of a murder, but they did not know he was connected to a bunch of others. And on his, um, I don't want to say his deathbed, but a little bit before that he came and, you know, brought peace to several families by telling the stories uh of what had happened to their loved ones and you know right it it it, it's a question of how how do people how do people live with those kinds of things it it you know not to be even sympathetic to 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 people who do things like that but it there must be an enormous amount of suffering in keeping a secret like that yeah i mean yeah, you have to imagine that, but but otherwise you'd have to be really a very cold, hard-hearted person to not feel anything. Yeah, and so you know, to your point, uh, I mean, from my point of view, I think we you always want to hold out hope because miracles can happen. But you know, from the head perspective, our minds, you know, we 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 face the reality that the likelihood is that she is not with us, and then it's also being able to say, you know, okay. But you still want to know. I mean, I think th- there's still going to be that the, that desire to want to know what happened, just to be able to bring some closure. What is it like to live without that? Um, I think there's a, a term called ambiguous loss that I think is really you know again I did talk a little bit about you know the comparative suffering in the book. Um, it, it, it because we all have different forms of suffering. And I, I wanted to be sure when we when I when I started out 
the journey with the reader in the book is that let's just agree in the beginning that we're not going to compare our individual losses, grief, or suffering, because it really isn't helpful. And and loss and suffering are universal. They are, and they're also individual. So, you know, we don't have to necessarily have the same, but uh, on the ambiguous loss situation, this is this, you know, when you, when you have this sense of loss, but it's not associated with a death, right? Because in this case, we don't know. It's it's just an, an unknown. But it's just that un, that it is. It's just that unknown. Knowing like where is the person? Um, you know, there's that desire for closure. I mean, it's almost like our minds are are built in a way that we need resolution for things because we have open ended things. They it's just like come. a book that ends with blank pages. Yeah, I mean, Drew called it, her dad called it, I think, worse than hell that there's it it is worse. It it is worse than hell. And that's like when in the very beginning with uh, when this happened, I mean, again, the the good side of human nature, John Walsh was one of the first people that reached out. um, Is that America's most wanted? Exactly. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Um, He lost his father. I mean, he lost his son, Adam. Adam, yeah. And uh, you know, got, got a chance to meet meet the brother at CrimeCon, so that that was pretty pretty interesting. And just I mean, I'm looking at him, and all of a sudden, I'm saying there was just like he looks so so much like him. You used to be in my living room every week. <laughs> yeah, it, exactly. <laughs> but you know, when, when you see those kinds of people, but the, but one of the folks that reached out and then got really active with us was uh, Hillary Sessions. Um, mm. Hillary's daughter Tiffany was uh, an undergraduate at University of Florida. And it was in 1988. My sister and brother remembered it because it was after they had moved to Florida. <clears throat> and because it was up in uh, Gainesville, obviously it would be on the Tampa News. But she went out for a jog and, and, and never returned. And to this day, um, they still don't really have an answer. But one of the things that, that one of the frightening things that Hillary had said, you know, sometimes at the end of the day, we'd be just sitting there. She said that the hard part for her is knowing that she's likely going to die and never know what happened to her daughter. And now here we are, eighteen years later, thinking kind of the same thing, right? I mean, it, the, the, there is a real possibility that that we may not get an answer. Yeah. Are there any? Are there active leads in the case still? According to um, you know what, I guess <laughs> Drew hears right that they're hard and, to and say. Right? Obviously, through the tip line and things like that, there's always things that are popping through that come and hit his email, and then he forwards them on. But that's part of the the sad, you know, situation we're at right now is that there was so much hope and anticipation um, over the last number of years when the Florida Department of Law Enforcement was eager to take on the case and give it a fresh look and apply resources and so forth. And then, of course, the battle with uh, the Orlando Police Department to, to release the case. And then that finally happened November of uh, 2022. We had hoped that by now, certainly, we would have had a... Uh, a much better picture of, of what might have happened to Jen. But here we sit 14 months later without really any significant movement or any significant communication with the family. And I know it's uh, it's been really hard, uh, again, on Drew specifically because he shouldered the, the bulk of this. But thankfully, last September, he, he, he finally got to a point. I had called him the day after uh, CrimeCon just to share with them everything that I had seen, heard, what we felt and experienced. And he sounded a lot better than he had in a long time. And and that was partly because he finally realized that, you know what, I, I've done, meaning Drew, I've done everything I can possibly do. 
Yeah. You know, I, I've got to kind of, I can't. It's t- hard to accept that with your daughter that you've. Yeah, done exactly. And, 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 and as, as hard as it is to realize that after all these years of pushing and prodding and, and trying to get people to do the right thing, it's, it hasn't, you know, it hasn't worked. And so at the moment, that's one of the reasons why in the latch up to the book, I, I really call for prayer because the only way that this case is going to get solved is hearts have to be broken. The people who are directly involved or have information about it so that they come forward and for law enforcement to do the things that they should do. And, and one of the things that, that, I, that just is mind numbing to me, we, we appreciate the fact that law enforcement agencies generally are going to be under-resourced financially with people. Um, it's, you know, I mean, there's just lots of things that are always going on. But then how about just being honest and say that we just don't have the resources and so encourage family to, you know, to, to get outside uh, private investigators or others. In fact, that was a comment that several people in law enforcement said to me at CrimeCon. They said they wish that more of that would take place because we mm. have to, they, I mean, law enforcement has to face the reality that they don't have unlimited resources of money and time and people to deal with all of this stuff. But Are just you familiar that. with like Bruce Maitland's effort, Brianna Maitland's father, the private investigations for the missing? He's trying to no that the resources, favorite. yeah, for families. And um, he, you know, he, I think it was 2018 he started it, but it really after the pandemic it took a um, big turn. But the idea is to fund um, private investigations, uh, and it's an interesting foundation. All the, you know, the people who run it don't take any salaries and all of the money goes to the private investigators and keeping their website on. Well, I'm going to, I'll look that up because again, that was one of my takeaways from CrimeCon was that I, I said, I was talking to Nancy Grace's uh, executive producer, Jackie Howard. I said, I was just, so their, their booth was right around from mine. And I just said that, you know what, as, as a first timer at this conference, I said, I can see this army uh, of, of followers of true crime around the globe to become laser focused, to be the agents of change, whether it's legislative or otherwise, to, to, to be the voice for the for victims' families and victims specifically. And, and of course, when you look at all the different podcasters out there, and even though, you, you know, as you say, maybe that's not your genre, but you, but you do touch it like you're doing today. But this is the opportunity to get that laser focus on a particular case and many of the podcasters that I spoke to said that's what, for them, if they decide to take on a case, that's what they're working on, right? They're not working on a dozen cases, it's one. And so they're able to dedicate the focus, the time to really dive into the paperwork. And so, yeah, if this if this fellow's organization is doing that, what we need to do is get law enforcement uh, to be willing to accept that assistance. Yep, <laughs> yep. and that's where... You often run into rubs, although there's some that are, you know, great with it. There's some that are challenged. I was thinking about what you were saying with um, Drew and him getting to that point in September where he's accepting everything he had done for his daughter. It reminded me, like, in, you know, as a recovering alcoholic and drug addict in AA, it was always baffling why the first step at first was to admit that you're powerless and you know, over time, it began to make sense, just like the serenity prayer where God give me the, you know, 
serenity right. or the grace is what the way that we say it to accept uh, the things that cannot be changed, the courage to change the things which should be changed and the wisdom to know the difference. Right. Yep. But if you keep on going, if you keep on going in that prayer in what the AA big book, it talks about living one day at a time, enjoying one moment at a time, accepting hardship as a pathway to peace. And, you know, and, it sort of sounds like that's part of what you've you've done. You know, you talked about that idea of time and time not being important, but living in the moment being important, having the courage to fight for the case and for and to push hope, but also accepting the part that you have no control over. Just wondering, you know, so people all of us go through loss and all of us go through suffering and we certainly can't compare them right because any suffering or loss and i'm sure it's true for your family that the way that drew or um jen's mom joyce experience it is completely different than the way you do or her um boyfriend uh has but what what from your perspective you all all of jen's loved ones have gone through so much suffering what message do you think would you have for people or do you think that we could learn through your experience? Is there hope or inspiration, you know, that we can get in those yeah. difficult moments of despair or, you know, I always like to say that, you know, when the walls are cl closing in, it's really hard to find hope. I think that th one of the things that I, I think is really important is there, there's this concept um, that a pastor, I, I really enjoy uh, things that he talks about. Um, Andy Stanley from North Point Ministries, he talks about, um, you know, we see enormities of problems around us and we get so overwhelmed by them that it paralyzes us and we do nothing. So how about just do for one what you wish you could do for many, right? Because we can't, we can't, help everybody but we can help one and and we and i've certainly tried to do that and some of those stories are in the book but in the case of cases like this i think one of the things that it, it is just so helpful and so important is for people to show up be physically mm -hmm. present but not necessarily speak right because unfortunately one of our one of our human tendencies is, is always think that we have to come up with words to express something and then unfortunately you know, we heard a lot of goofy and hurtful things from people who probably meant well. <laughs> but, okay. But at the end of the day, the most important thing is to be physically present, show up, give a hug. You don't even have to speak, right? Just to be there. And then, and then if you see needs that need to be met, meet them. And the, and the best example of that, I can tell you that, that everything moves so rapidly but at, at one point it got to the it got to the point that you know we we couldn't continue to assemble at the apartment complex the condo complex and i don't even remember how or who made the arrangement but the the manager of the mall of millennia gave us use of their community rooms and i mean literally we were there for months and you we had there on any given day hundreds and hundreds of people would show up to ask what they could do to help um, it, you know, we, we were at, we were at a point where we were working with child watch and some other organizations. We we're always running some type of thing to, you know, event for the public as well. 
But it was just amazing to me because I, I did a lot of the, if you will, the, the briefing to help people that were going to come in while Joyce, Drew, and them were dealing with law enforcement and other issues. And it was always amazing to me that people said that they came down for vacation, they saw the story in the news, and they, they all decided that they wanted to come over and give some of their time to help out. That's what, did that, what did that mean to you? Oh my gosh, that that meant the world. I mean, we would talk. We talked about that constantly to say, this is this is this is how real people in the real world act. They see a need and they decide, I'm going to do so. I can do something about it. You know, I, maybe I can, I can go and hand out flowers. I can stand on a corner. I can go and you know knock on business doors or whatever. I mean, but that's exactly what we experienced. And I, I tell you, I think that's what helped get us over those early months was just seeing the continuous outpouring of love and care from people. So that's the, the message. broader human community. Exactly. Yeah. So that's the message. And, and, and so in, and in the early days, when other cases like that happened, we would go and help those families out. So, you know, when you hear about a case that's in your local area, just go, I mean, show up wherever they may happen to be meeting, um, offer to help, uh, do whatever you can do. And, uh, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> Because just be there, like you said. Just be just there, be because there. that that is just so comforting in those moments to really just. I mean, we we look out and see the numbers of people that were there and saying these people didn't even know us, didn't know Jen, but they cared. Yeah. The power that's, of that's the love really of a, exactly. there's something to be said for like the power of the love of a stranger. Absolutely, you know, who just Absolutely. loves you because you're human. I wanted to get. I appreciate all of your time and the conversation. And there are a lot of, to me, a lot of good takeaways about how we can improve our system and how we can improve situations like this. But a lot of good takeaways for me about how we can sort of like be loving for each other and to love ourselves, it sounds like for you, is a key part of your journey to sort of treat yourself the way you deserved, right? To untangle that mess. Um, well, yeah, well, I can remember, you know, in the very beginning, I mean, my wife and other family members were like really not quite sure about what was happening with me. And I'll never forget one time I said to my wife, I said, listen, I don't even understand it all myself. I said, but one <laughs> thing I do, I said, one thing I did know that if I didn't get right with God first, there wasn't another relationship in my life that was like likely going to work right. Mm. So, you know, one of the things that- Including that probably your relationship with yourself. Absolutely. And so, so I, I, but I'd like to, my goal to inspire hope for other people is to say that, you know, we're all really pretty good at looking at other people and saying, we wish that they would be and then fill in the blank, right? Well, <laughs> how about, yeah, but how about, how about if we work on ourselves to become the person we wish other people would be, mm. right? First. Yeah. And then if yeah. we do that, you're, you're right. Then with ourselves personally, we're going to be, we're going to be a better person. Um, and then our relationship will all of a sudden uh, start to improve, and then we can be that ripple effect. So become the person That's you awesome. wish other people would be. Work on yourself I, first. I love that. I love that. Anyway, I wanted to thank you again, Bill. It's been an awesome conversation. It, yeah, it and, has um, been. Yeah, I'm, and I will see you in Nashville, I hope, for I am, uh, this yep, year's Crime Gone. We were, we were just talking about that today, awesome. so yeah. I will be there. <laughs> Thanks again. Um, I appreciate it. Of course, of course. If you would like to join us for more discussions with us and our other listeners, we can be found on most social media platforms, including a listener-run Facebook group called the Silver Linings Fireside Chat. 
For deeper conversations with our guests and live conversations with other listeners, you can also join us at our Patreon at www.patreon.com forward slash the Silver Linings Handbook. This is Jason Blair, and this is the Silver Linings Handbook Podcast. We'll see you all again next week.